Lo distinto te ha encontrado. Esto es Infinita Podcast. Encuentra nuevos episodios cada semana. Suscríbete. And we're there. So welcome everybody to this new series of the DT podcast where everybody's at home. Um, I guess this is the volume two and this is the first uh, interview of this volume two, Kareem. So thank you for, for joining us. It's a very, very special series. Uh, big shout out to Carlos from Fiscal Digital who uh, helped us uh, make this happen. And um, this is our episode number 61. Um, So with us, we have uh, our co-host, uh, Juan Pablo Lemos from Vivex. Uh, welcome to the show. And our special guest today is Karim Jabbar. Karim, it's really an honor to have you here. Um, you know, Carlos has spoken very highly uh, of you and, and your trajectory and how you came to this is super, super interesting. And I think it'll spark a lot of uh, inspiration to, to Guatemala to see how combining all the things that you learned throughout life and then making it real and happen in, in, in this uh, space is what, you know, really creates the spark and the magic of it. Um, so, you know, let's, let's dig right in, Karim. Tell us a little bit about you, um, how you got here and, uh, you know, where, where you're from. Thanks, Esteban, for, for having me. It's really uh, an honor and I'm uh, uh, similarly happy to, to know Carlos. Uh, we have a good working relationship. So I'm really happy that uh, you uh, find our project interesting and see that there is a match here and that maybe I can contribute in some way to the ongoing development of the community in, in Guatemala and Central America. So, so essentially, my, my story, as you say, is, is probably similar to the story of many people who are interested in decentralized technologies and, uh, and blockchain slash cryptocurrency. Uh, it, it's, it, it's atypical. There's very few people who are out of the same mold. So, so me, myself, was probably more, uh, you could say, uh, uh, mainstream in the sense that I uh, attended a, you know, a business school. Uh, my background, though, was a bit different. I grew up in Morocco. Uh, with a you know a, a foot in in two continents, with my mom being Danish and my father Moroccan, so I decided uh, uh, early on to that what I wanted to do in life needed to have some sort of you know uh, uh, bridge making capability or at least ensuring that what I do also has an impact somewhere. So um, I wanted to work with uh, diplomacy, foreign service, that sort of thing, which was essentially what I started out by doing. Uh, so straight out of business school, I essentially got a job with the European Commission to, to work in their delegation in, in West Africa and in, in Benin. Uh, I did that essentially working with um, the private sector development projects and trade related issues, that sort of stuff, uh, which was really interesting, but also very heavy and very political. Uh, and of course, there is a need for all types of projects at all levels. But uh, at some point, I realized that it wasn't really made for me. The cycles were just too long. So essentially, I went on to, to uh, work in the private sector uh, in the complete opposite. So I remained in Africa for a while. I was based in Cape Town and I uh, uh, managed a company that had subsidiaries in, in 
five countries. So doing uh, safari tours, essentially, and these types of things in East Africa and Southern Africa, uh, selling those products to tour operators across the world that would then send their tourists to Africa. So it was a great experience. I started my own company trying to do that for a while. It didn't work so well because of the previous financial crisis, 2008. So it kind of failed miserably. And essentially, I turned back to, to, to teaching, which is always a good fallback. So I ended up being an adjunct professor at Copenhagen Business School and teaching innovation, entrepreneurship, all the stuff that I basically didn't manage to do properly. So, 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 uh, and also learning for myself, right? And over the next years, I kind of figured out I was always on the outlook. I uh, and finally, uh, you could say what actually uh, uh, happened on the spark uh, with Bitcoin and uh, and that movement was back in 2013. It was uh, uh, it's one of those stories on a you know on a Friday night at a bar. <laughs> so so uh, I was in, out with a few friends and I noticed my, a, a colleague of mine was standing there and he was uh, kind of quite drunk. And he was paying rounds for everybody with some buddies that I didn't know. And uh, they were all talking about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And I had no clue what they were talking about. But but essentially, um, uh, insistingly, he mentioned that you should check it out. This is going to make you rich. This is amazing. And blah, 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 blah. And he paid rounds for everybody that night. And I kind of forgot about it, you know, in the next weeks. Uh, and then at some point, I didn't. I was kind of bored, I think. So I kind of looked it up. Uh, and I basically didn't leave my computer for three weeks uh, trying just to dig deeper into this and understand how the mechanisms actually were. And the more I got to understand it and wrap my hand or head around it, the more I thought, well, this could really be interested, uh, interesting. And what early on triggered me was not just the, you know, the, the transactions themselves, but the, you know, already then you were talking about, you know, colored coins and ways of annotating transactions with other types of data, which I thought was interesting because the areas of application all of a sudden became much bigger. Uh, and, and, you know, so, so I went down that rabbit hole for, for a while. I didn't really invest much because it was right before that peak at 1,200 US when essentially yeah. it matched uh, gold and then it crashed again. So I basically just let it go. Uh, and, and a few years later, I was uh, uh, enrolling uh, at uh, the Department of Computer Science at the, the University of Copenhagen to do a PhD. I was lucky enough to get a grant to sponsor that. So at the same time as I, as I was teaching, I was also being able to pursue a, a PhD, which I didn't have. Uh, and I wanted to make it about something uh, innovative and technology based. So, and I'm not a programmer myself, so it was a bit of an uphill battle to do a you know a PhD in computer science. So I kind of designed it around um, human computer interaction. Uh, so essentially, uh, focusing more on uh, the the social dimensions of technology in use and on uh, infrastructure development as being a social construct, essentially, that uh, it takes a lot of people uh, uh, to actually manifest uh, a technology such as uh, Bitcoin and blockchain into the real world. So it requ requires the likes of Juan Pablo and thousands of others that are essentially tapping into that technology and making it available to the rest of us through some useful interfaces, whether it's point of sale systems or whatever, in order for this to actually merge as an actual infrastructure. So so that uh, is, you know, the, the approach that I took. Uh, and through that approach, I basically studied different applications of, of, of uh, cryptocurrency uh, and Bitcoin, uh, starting with, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin ecosystem and then moving over to uh, applications and uh, in, in different domains. So one of them was supply chain uh, management, generally speaking, maritime shipping. Uh, and another application was within energy, the energy sector and climate markets. 
So that is essentially, you know, you could say an academic journey that I then quickly realized would make sense to supplement with some sort of practical you know, touch points. So uh, I went about and uh, scoped the market, worked for a while with a company called Blockchain Labs for open collaboration. We did a few projects with the uh, Lloyd's Registry in the UK, um, uh, the Danish Maritime uh, Association here in, in Denmark, and essentially trying to figure out prototypes and so on for application of, of blockchain and, and, and shipping. Uh, um, and, and I basically left that uh, you know, by the time I was more or less done with my PhD and started over uh, doing my, the recent company that I'm with. Uh, Solstrom, which essentially is in, uh, you could say it's it's in the carbon uh, space, uh, uh, but focused on the uh, uh, on uh, solar energy as being the source that essentially creates these carbon offsets that are sold through the platform that we have created. So um, you could say that the journey went from general fascination, uh, the big transformative picture of cryptocurrency and so on, towards more narrow uh, applications, which essentially. I must admit, take away some of the sting of cryptocurrency and it ends up more towards a private type of blockchain or uh, uh, distributed ledger, which is also what we opted for for our particular uh, uh, application. So uh, maybe it's, it's something that we can touch upon uh, upon later, but essentially that's more or less the, 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 the flow of, of, of my journey and where we are now. Uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, fundraise, uh, we, uh, we, we have a bunch of commitments and we also have a system launch uh, next week actually on the 15th. Uh, we'll have uh, the first uh, proper version up and running with uh, payments going through the system that would allow uh, clients in different parts of the world to uh, offset their CO2 emissions uh, by buying uh, carbon offsets that are generated through decentralized solar installations in uh, developing countries, uh, among others Guatemala. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I want to, um, definitely I want to dig, dig deeper in, in, into that journey of how you went, you know, from your understanding of public blockchain, yes. um, how you studied them in, 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 in an application way, an applicative way, how can I have, uh, apply this? And, and then you go, okay, maybe it is better to go to a private blockchain. So I think that's, that's a really interesting point. To go into that, I, you know, you've been very active. You've, you've done a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I admire, um, you know, your, your spirit, your spirit behind it. Um, and I think, you know, you've, you have been doing more of what you preach than you believe, uh, you have because that journey is interesting from, from, from how you transitioned to that and applied all that innovation. Because I think it, it really takes a lot of, uh, innovative and straightforward, um, thinking of not only seeing the theory, but then applying it. So uh, I would like to go deeper into the part of when you were um, doing your PhD, giving classes, and then I guess you started working at Block Labs. Yeah. So how, how easy was it not to talk about um, Bitcoin and blockchain with your students when you were giving classes? Well, well uh, actually that was, it's really funny because that was the draw card that got a lot of people in to the class in the first place because it was a uh -huh. you know, moment of hype and uh, uh, I remember first time we ran a, a full class on uh, on the topic in uh, 2017 uh, there was a waiting list uh, and and we had over a hundred enrolled in the class so it was a, a very big thing uh, and uh, uh, actually earlier this week or was it uh, yeah yesterday actually I was teaching the same class again you know uh, cohort number five or something like that uh, and now the number of enrolled 
old was 20. <laughs> so so uh, there's different reasons for it. Of course, uh, it's not as you know trendy anymore. Uh, so a lot of people uh, don't pay interest. But uh, in, but also because many more departments at school actually offer blockchain courses in different disguises. So uh, the students probably spread out more rather than having the one blockchain course that was the first one to actually be be launched. So so. Uh, uh, and the representation of students in those classes always will be uh, some people that come in with a, you could say, domain expertise and knowledge and interest. They're interested in supply chain or forestry or uh, whatever uh, uh, thing that they actually are into, finance, for example. Uh, and they just want to know how to apply technology to that particular domain. And then you would have a section of the class, which is people who have gone into the rabbit hole of crypto uh, and are very active themselves have traded a lot and they know the details of how it works from a you know practitioner perspective and not so much from an academic one so it's interesting the dynamic in those classes become interesting because uh, so, uh while the ones that are uh, you know uh, um, maybe academically strong in the readings and so on might not know the intricacies and the details of what you can actually learn by doing and similarly, those people who are just doers will often lack the ability to construct, you know, sound theoretical reasoning for why to do or not to do something. Everything just tends to be mar marvelous and let's just do something crypto and it, it will it will succeed, which obviously we all know is not the case, right? So. <laughs> yeah, so, I, so, so obviously a lot of students were hyped and, and how do you think was the reaction? How did that... Um, you know, how did you then bring it down to apply it in it at Block Lab? Yeah, because uh, well, I, I think it must have been really interesting being with companies there. And so, so, so part of my research or the approach that I wanted to do in, in my PhD was uh, for practical reasons and based on you know my background would be I would have a, a greater uh, you know. Uh, uh, impact or a contribution if I actually in, looked at the entrepreneurs that were implementing blockchain or working with blockchain and following their journeys and essentially trying to theoriticize and, and make up, you know, uh, uh, my research around uh, my observations as, as to what they do seen from a theoretical perspective and try to come up with something new that would explain patterns, uh, you know, of uh, infrastructure emergence in such uh, a, a setting. So, so as such, uh, you know, I, I needed to go out and engage with people. So my old data collection was not so much uh, code and, you know, the, the intricacies of the actual application. It was more the qualitative engagements in the different areas where these people were, were active and following them as closely as possible, almost, you could say, ethnographically, trying to uh, understand their reasonings and the trade-offs that they need to make uh, in their work, trying to balance two things. On the one hand, the very short-sighted or very specific um, need to make a business grow. Uh, with all the constraints that you have in that, which is kind of uh, you know localized, and at the same time knowing that everything that they do has actually has an impact on the whole of the infrastructure and the trade-offs that they make by choosing you know to adhere to one you know blockchain, for example, over another for their application has certain lock-ins lock and certain certain trade-offs, and how do they actually make those decisions and what uh, what is the rationale? So so uh, so so. Uh, uh, essentially, that was the, the 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 logic that I tried to convey to to the students as well. Uh, uh, and there is a disconnect in some cases. The students who come in with a crypto understanding sometimes will very often see this as a you know uh, 
uh, almost being a traitor <laughs> uh, when you go in and you take away <laughs> thing of what's you know the core of blockchain that is public that it's you know anonymous uh, that it works on you know some sort of you know it, whether it's proof of work or whatever it is but essentially uh, the the fact that uh, you have a situation where you open up the door for collusion among parties when you set up a private blockchain uh, who gets to run the nodes what are, what are the government structures and so on and just the fact that you would want to choose that would make you a, a traitor right uh, to the idea <laughs> and and, and uh, where i would then argue that it might not be as black and white it might be actually that the uh, uh, infrastructure that might emerge as you know the one that w is going to uh, you know uh, leverage microtransactions and the hundreds of millions uh, when you know uh, 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 charging stations talk to electric cars and and you know all this uh, uh, industry 4.0 and what have you it's going to yeah. be made up in my view of a patchwork of different systems that need to be interoperable and one does not exclude the other so the whole logic of having for example side chains in order to scale uh, uh, a public uh, uh, you know uh, blockchain the same logic could be applied by let's do a lot of you know uh, permissioned transactions that are high volume and then trying to find a way to settle them and tag them in an intricate way to different blockchains so that's also something that we have on the you know drawing board for what we're doing so essentially yes we're going to do a, a private blockchain uh, uh, because it just has the speed that that this uh, needs in order for it to work because we'll be selling carbon offsets down to the gram of carbon uh, which essentially would require literally millions of transactions uh, very quickly so so uh, if we were to do that we can't really run it. it would be too expensive to run it on ethereum or on another public uh, blockchain but we can peg, uh, combine the transactions at the end of the day or at the end of the week and essentially lock that in and make a hash and connect it to a bunch of public pub, pub, uh, public blockchains for extra verification for whoever wants to do that so i think you know uh, uh, the either or is maybe uh, a black and white way of viewing it and maybe what will happen down the line is going to be more of a, a world of interoperability which is needed if you're pragmatic and i consider myself pragmatic and if you know the the result out there is uh, action and implementation on the ground sometimes it's naive i think to to think that everybody will essentially jump ship and go to the one ring that rules them all and it will be one uh -huh. blockchain for everything but instead it's going to be a multitude of things we just need to make the things talk to each other so to keep it simple right hey, hey that's great i want i want to follow on on that one so yeah. like what's your um in a nutshell the perspective that you recommend on how to approach a public and a private you you mentioned and gave a lot of cues right now um but more on a on a like on a perspective wise, if I'm a company and I want to realize a, a project, because I think, you know, um, I just read uh, Breedlove's, uh, you know, Robert Breedlove and the article he wrote about zero, Bitcoin being yeah. zero. So I think it's more of a, what's taking time is companies to understand what is important to bring, have in a public ledger, what's important to have in a private ledger. And, you know, they're trying to make it match those those uh, perspectives. So I think it would be nice to have them laid out. So what do you recommend on how should we um, define this perspective? Well, well uh, uh, to keep it you know simple and pragmatic, maybe just look in my own journey in my own case. Uh, so so uh, uh, my uh, intuitive vision uh, at you know at the early stages of wanting to apply something for carbon markets. 
I, 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 I'm more inclined to actually think, well, it would be great if you have a public blockchain to actually run things on. Uh, you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, the, the node distribution. And uh, essentially, there is a, a system for, for ensuring the security of, of, of the blockchain, which has some sort of reward mechanism built into it and then basically runs itself. And I'm basically just building an application on that. So the, 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 the logic uh, appealed to, to, to me to initially. So, so um, my first uh, inclination was to say, well, let's try to, for simplicity, let's try to do uh, an application on Ethereum, build a prototype, see how it would actually work to generate and issue carbon offsets and then trade them on some sort of platform, uh, essentially writing a smart contract uh, in Solidity on, 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 uh, uh, on Ethereum. So, so what we quickly realized is uh, it is relatively easy to do, but it's also a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, it's a bit, it's it's a bit convoluted as soon as you start scaling, because uh, the 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 whole thing of ensuring that you always have enough gas for the transactions, it becomes you know a, a different beast to work with than if you just work with a a simple distributed database uh, which has some sort of built-in consensus mechanism as a you know proof of a, you know either authority or reputation or something which is less heavy. Uh, then it's uh, uh, infinitely f uh, faster and easier to to scale. So we started by actually writing the whole co code out and trying it out and deploying it on the Ethereum testnet, seeing that it actually works. But we realized that the next steps would need to be some sort of migration to something that would work at a faster pace. Because uh, uh, in our particular case, uh, we were not talking about uh, few large transactions. We were talking about potentially down the line, once, once we reach cruising altitude, if you like, we would like to have a situation where people... Uh, could essentially buy, uh, go to a store. Uh, let's say you go to you're in the U.S. You go to a Starbucks, uh, uh, and you want to offset the CO2 footprint of that particular cup of coffee. If you translate that down to a monetary value, it's going to be a very very small. It might be a cent or two that you actually need to to pay in order to do that. Uh, and in order for this to actually run, you will, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of cups of coffee that, that need to be bought with very, very small fractions of carbon offsets that essentially get settled and traced directly to micro installations in Guatemala, Mexico, other uh, uh, other countries. So so, so uh, the, the, the sheer number of transactions would make it cumbersome and complicated and heavy to run it on, a, on an Ethereum blockchain. So therefore, the, the, for us, the solution was simple. We needed to, to uh, work with something that was more flexible and faster. Uh, and the trade-offs we are very much aware of the trade-off is that we will also then be responsible for the infrastructure level for deploying the nodes in the proper way. So, which a problem we wouldn't have with Ethereum. So, so who should actually run these nodes? And when you do development at this stage, well, uh, so far we run the nodes, which is not something that's nice to tell somebody from, <laughs> you know, uh, from uh, 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 you yeah. know, uh, point background. For example, is like, wow. So you're a centralized system posing as if you are a decentralized system. But that's the only way you can actually do it at the early stages until you have something that works, and then you can get parties on board and you can get them to to run the nodes, and you'll start with four or five and essentially grow. And yes, there's going to be governance issues. We're going to need to figure out, you know, off-chain governance. How do you ensure that we avoid uh, becoming a close circle of, of uh, uh, for example, uh, industry players that uh, don't want to let in other people to essentially uh, uh, run nodes on, on the system? So that needs to essentially be done in parallel with the code development, which is uh, extra work and something that uh, we haven't really gotten to yet, which is the next step that we need to get into, uh, ensuring that... Uh, 
we let go of our system in a way that we can actually make it distributed, which it currently isn't, but hopefully it will become as more parties join and people agree to take on the management of these dis the re respective nodes. So, so we're trading off, you know, uh, one problem with another problem. Uh, and for us, uh, it was the only option possible also because there is, uh, you know, jurisdiction issues and, and, uh, 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 issues in terms of data pri privacy, where the server is located, and if it's a purely public blockchain, well, obviously it's going to be global. People are going to be everywhere. Whereas now we can select the geographies of where we want to run the nodes, and therefore we can align ourselves better with compliance requirements uh, in, in different jurisdictions to ensure uh, data privacy and that sort of stuff. So it's it's a more flexible tool for us to 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 work with. But to summarize for uh, any company that wants to do this, it will all depend, I think, on the, the type of application you actually want to build. If the use case here uh, can be, uh, is essentially a distributed ledger that, that uh, has a few large transactions, uh, you could very well run that on a, on a public blockchain. It might even be advisable to do so. Whereas if it's something where your ultimate goal is to become, you know, a, a, a microfinance thing that runs at super high speed between, you know, uh, machine to machine and what have you down the line that can actually automatically settle things in real time. Uh, at, at, uh, it, it might be cumbersome and too expensive to do it uh, uh, using the, the, the public setup. So so those are, you know, my, my few, you know, general recommendations when it comes to that. Yeah. Or, I don't know. <laughs> what I, I, I see the advantage in, in setting up, you know, the private blockchain part and and, yeah. and thinking about the whole, uh, how do I set up a, a DLT system yeah. um, privately? Very important because at the end, this is the groundwork of how you're going to connect your system at one point uh, yes. to the public system. Yes. Uh, so if, if you don't do it, you'll, you'll never be able to do it. So you have to do it. And and although I think, which is, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, um, the, the payout may not be immediate, um, so rewarding, but on the long term, that's where yeah. you really get the, the, your return of, of, of investment. I, I think you're right. And there's also just one thing that I mentioned to, uh, forgot to mention before, is that in our particular use case in Soulstorm, what we're actually transacting and selling is at, at, at the core an abstraction. So we're selling, you know, uh, 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 an abstraction on top of energy produced. So, so if there's a solar installation that produces, uh, that is deployed uh, in a rural setting in Guatemala, for example, it, it will be replacing uh, another source of energy which is polluting. And that, uh, you know, difference is essentially what is being monetized as a carbon offset and then being sold. So in a, you know, a critic could say, well, it's essentially, uh, it's, uh, it's a derivative the same way as a future or whatever. So it has some sort of abstract value that is kind of created out of, not out of thin air, but through some sort of algorithmic calculation. Uh, and it is that that you're, that you're selling. So this sets very high standards for third party verification, because if we're the ones selling that unit of, of, uh, trading or selling that particular unit of value, uh, we need some sort of assurance that uh, or the customers need assurance that what we're selling them is in fact something that has taken place and it's not just hot air. So therefore we need a third party verifier, which is what we're in the process of getting done right now with the DNVGL. So one of the industry players that works with, with verification and ISO standards and so on. Uh, and for them to go in and double check code 
although they're very open to to blockchain and to distributed ledger and maybe also one of the reasons why they actually wanted to work with us uh, uh, despite that they have a bias very much as well towards the private blockchains because it's easier for them to justify the verification because they know exactly where the nodes are and who runs them and they don't have to work mm-hmm. uh, get get themselves entangled into a whole discussion about you know where the public service located uh, and so on and so forth so that also is a contributing factor to why we chose a private uh, blockchain or a DLT system yeah Yeah, and I, I I think it's also interesting how you to solve the problem of the input of 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 the info of the data. You yeah. went with you know IoT at the end, and I've always we spoke about this in uh, in this podcast. You know, we had the founder of Arduino here and everything. He's also in in, in Denmark, I think. I yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and um, so. I, I think this is a, a, an interesting point where everything comes together. Okay, so how are you going to um, make sure that the, in, the data you're putting in is, is correct is by being there, by physically being there. That's the best way. So you connect this device and there's no argument on that. <laughs> um, how, 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 did, you know, how did you get to that idea to that point? Because I'm pretty sure you had like a, a lot of a broad spectrum of possible ways of How is yeah. you could input data? Yeah, and and obviously in that sense, uh, uh, distributed ledgers and blockchain are uh, uh, precisely similar to any other database. Uh, it's as good as the input. So so to avoid this garbage in, garbage garbage out type of uh, issue, we need okay. to make sure that the connections to it are actually secure and that the data handling is you know done properly by the parties and there is uh, some sort of. Uh, Uh, checks and balances in place so that uh, the system cannot be played, uh, uh, which is very difficult uh, in certain use cases. In others, it's going to be easier. So, so if it's if we're uh, staying with the analogy of of our uh, area of business, let's assume we're uh, trying to do carbon offsets from uh, uh, large scale uh, industry, you know, uh, s- solar farms or wind farms. Uh, you know, the 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 yield of such a farm would be huge. You wouldn't meet, need many of those in order to have a big inventory that you can sell. So, therefore, uh, uh, going straight to the actual windmill and a uh, wind turbine. And, and and pulling the data straight from it through some sort of IoT device or using the software that's that it actually runs on through some sort of secure API would be a, a good way of of doing that and doing inspections on the ground to ensure that those are actually working. Uh, but if you have a situation where uh, you have uh, working with partners that have seventy thousand, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand decentral solar installation deployed in rural areas across uh, terrain that is hard to get to, uh, it would be virtually impossible to verify boots on the ground every single one of those. It would be so cost prohibitive that you know nobody would actually be able to do this exercise. So we needed to find a way to make this a light way uh, where it, there again it's a trade-off. It's never going to be 100% secure, but we can make it as secure as we possibly can uh, so it's still affordable for the for, for for the users to actually gain an advantage from this setup. So so what we have decided uh, what we're doing is essentially rather than partnering with uh, micro installations that are deployed by you could say uh, 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 individuals in rural areas We go with uh, companies that uh, deploy uh, pay-as-you-go uh, solutions because pay-as-you-go solutions require, of course, some sort of monitoring of the installation and of the payments, ensuring that there is an ID for every 
set every installation that has been put in place and that the payments are properly managed. So they would all have some sort of ERP system that functions. And as for us, it would be a matter of, you know, pulling the data from that ERP system. And yes, there's going to be a bunch of assumptions. Assumptions would be that, you know, the installations are actually real. The data that they will be feeding us from the ERP system is the correct data that they're not, you know, uh, 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 mirroring the the database and mm-hmm. just making up a fake one that feeds us, you know, uh, expanded numbers just to make more money uh, and so on and so forth. So we need to put in place a lot of contingencies and fail safes in order to ensure that the data transfer protocol works as it's supposed to work. So so uh, and this is actually the details of what I've been working on today. Just to you know let you in on the you know nitty gritty <laughs> stuff is getting all that material ready for DNVGL because they're the ones who are uh, essentially uh, double checking that those processes for data handling are actually up to a certain standard and would be valid enough so that this could actually count. So so um, uh, in terms of fail-safes, you could say there's different uh, grades of, of uh, integrations that you can make. And the best one would be to work through a third-party software provider. So a lot of these uh, decentralized solar uh, uh, companies would use a third-party software to run their last-mile operations and to run their payments uh, and so on. And they have an account on that particular software. Uh, and, and there's a few of them that have big market shares. So currently, we're working with one of them in order to build a, a suite of APIs into their system so they can deploy those to all their uh, uh, partners, which would allow them through their account to automatically gain access to, to, to our system, which makes it more difficult for that particular partner to go ahead and cheat the system because it would require them to have two accounts on, on that particular uh, software platform, which the software platform will, will see. And then, you know, we will be notified and, and, you know, the whole fraudulent behavior gets flagged. So that would be a great one. And then down the line, the less, you know, uh, uh, solid the, the data t- uh, integration is, the higher risk you have. So so um, we, we, will, we basically do workarounds in order to catch the mistakes. Uh, so I don't know if, if it's too detailed for you, but essentially, you know. No, no, no. It was very, it was very, it's, it's very interesting because yeah. so at the end, you, you are going kind of case by case, yes. analyzing what is the best solution to to yes. to bring in this this data? Yes, um, and, and then we're thinking about what should the fail safes then be uh, in 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 terms of uh, how can we ensure that the data that we do read is the correct data. So we basically contrast it to projection data. So we would do pre-calculations for every provider that actually tells us what the numbers of installations, what the data sheets look like. So we would be able to model uh, essentially a model of how much they, we can expect them to yield per month. And then we will automatically go in and contrast the data that we get with the model. And if there is too big of a deviation, we will know to f- we will actually go into the details and double check whether something has gone wrong somewhere. So, so those extra steps are necessary. The weaker, you could say, the data bridge actually is. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And so, from you know, like since it's very specific and, and saying on a, on, a, on a broader scale, so the project is you know you're grabbing this. Uh, um, carbon emissions or the carbon emissions that would have been uh, uh, emitted if it was generated differently, the energy, you're tokenizing them, you're distributing them. Um, from all of this and, and, and technically all the challenges that you just described, what we, what would you think it was like a bigger challenge? Like getting, finding the use case, seeing the business perspective here, 
creating the business model or the technology behind it that made it possible. Um, so, so yes. you know, to put it into perspective, what are the biggest challenges in creating a project like this? Yeah, technology think, or business? Yeah, uh, and uh, the very short answer is business. Uh, I, I, don't, I think technology would easily be applicable uh, with a bit of creativity. You could design and put the bits and pieces together for for creating a proper system for virtually any use case. But in most cases, those use cases are not a business <laughs> unless they have a proper <laughs> business model built in, into them uh, where you all of a sudden tap into something that is untapped into, then, then you, you're going to have an issue trying to convince people to join. And you could say, well, our journey here was originally to try to have larger installations on board, create this kind of setup and uh, create uh, and use blockchain for carbon offsets. Uh, we stumbled across actually uh, Decentral Solar, these Paygo companies, uh, you know, down the line in our investigation. And it was only through talking to some of them that we realized, wait a second, these guys actually don't have access to carbon markets. They have tried for a long time to have access to carbon markets, but uh, the cost of getting verified by the established system of verification is just too expensive. Uh, so therefore, most of them never go through the hassle of doing that. So, so uh, uh, essentially, we found something which wasn't uh, was completely untapped into, and therefore it became became easier for us to convince them and onboard them onto the particular uh, system. And, and uh, honestly, that it was a bit of a coincidence for us that we actually stumbled across this. And as we dug into it, we realized, wait a second, there is actually something here that really makes sense. So, uh, what we're trying to do in a nutshell is to take on the supply side all these. Um, you could say uh, uh, underserved uh, people who are don't have access to carbon finance. Uh, you know, uh, you you have two million new uh, decentralized installations installed every year, but they actually don't have a, a, access to carbon markets to sell the energy savings that they actually uh, the carbon savings that they have. That should change. It's a it's an easy sell, uh, and we try to offer make an offering that allows them to to join in. So small players, and then our challenge on the sales side is going to be to ensure that we find the proper customers to then uh, buy into this narrative and actually want to buy these offsets from the registry that we have. So that's the next challenge that we're currently working with. Uh, and, and as with two, two, all two-sided platforms, you need to have the right balance uh, uh, and ramp it up at the right, right speed. Otherwise, you know, the, the bicycle tips over. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, I was uh, thinking to help us understand what yes. you're doing. This is a multi-part question. Uh, first off, how does the carbon offset market work at the at the moment, and who needs or who pays for these carbon offset credits? Yes. And why do they pay for them? Okay. So 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 uh, the, there's you could say uh, there's different kinds of carbon markets. So essentially, the whole logic of of uh, 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 compensating uh, 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 negative for positive, you know, is the logic behind it. So it's a compensation type of mechanism. You would have two types of markets. So you'd have a compliance market, which we do not work with. So the compliance market would be uh, emissions trading schemes. For example, in Europe, in the EU, you have this EU ETS, so emission trading scheme, where companies get a cap on emissions. Uh, and if they exceed their cap, they will have to buy uh, allowances from companies that have not used up their 
uh, quota on, uh, of, of allowances. So, and then it's a dynamic market, uh, and you could say the caps get reduced over time in order to uh, incentivize, in order to drive up the price uh, on those uh, uh, allowances, which over time is going to be an incentive for people to change their behavior and reduce their emissions. So, so that's you know one market. It's a pretty big market. There is currently 40 of those markets. Uh, China alone has seven of these compliance markets. Uh, U.S. doesn't have one, but it has several uh, regional markets. Uh, and uh, uh, and then you have the voluntary market. The voluntary market is for the companies that are not regulated uh, by by this. All the sectors that are not regulated. So the 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 area in the world that has the most regulated companies is actually the EU. But that's only forty percent of companies that are actually regulated. So sixty percent of all economic activity here, with all the emissions associated with that, is not regulated. There's no mandatory, you know, compliance uh, requirements. So for those companies, they if they feel a pressure from their consumers or their stakeholders to actually have a you know a better image and be more sustainable and have a green you know be CO2 neutral uh, then they will resort to uh, a carbon offsetting as part of their strategy so of course they'll try to reduce the you know the 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 you know the the, the wrapping and the packaging of their goods and try to find the change the source of fuel or what have you but at the end of the day they can't reduce everything so whatever is left they will have to compensate uh, through buying offsets and here the offset market and the voluntary market works globally so you would essentially offset your emissions in Europe for example uh, with projects that could be anywhere in the world and the most of them are actually in the developed uh, developing countries so you would have forestry projects which essentially sequestrates the carbon uh, as a compensation for the, the emissions that happen uh, elsewhere. Or it would be renewable energy projects that uh, by them being deployed, they're not burning an alternative source of fuel, which would have emitted a similar amount to what you actually you do emit here. So, so those, that, that is essentially the landscape. And the companies who are the ones uh, that are uh, buying this would typically be the non-regulated companies. And it would be companies in, in industries such as uh, you know, uh, banking, tech companies. So data companies would typically not be regulated. It could be a lot of companies in retail and, uh, you know, retail companies, uh, supermarkets, uh, um, uh, people that have a lot of, you know, uh, scope three emissions, you know, essentially supply, supply chain uh, related emissions and their customers are making them aware of the fact that, oh, uh, maybe we should, uh, you should be greener. You should use, you know, better modes of shipping. You should have, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, so they will uh, tend to go in and try to compensate for whatever footprint it has to get something manufactured in China and shipping it to Europe to sell it. So, so uh, they do the calculation. They will have uh, consultants that help them with a uh, an, an, an account. So they will do a CO2 uh, 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 accounting. Uh, and based on that, the numbers will then be uh, uh, sent on to a broker or retailer. And the broker and the retailer will hook them up with a project from which they can actually buy. Uh, and there is no uh, consolidated exchange currently. There is two exchanges actually, but they're very small volume. And most companies would is instead go through a, a project developer or a retailer or a broker, which typically also uh, have a role as um, uh, as consultants. So they would go out and consult the company about sustainability stuff. And once they realized, well, you all, you could also carbon offset, by the way, we have this connection and they will hook them up and they will take a commission. So it's a very uh, cumbersome way of doing it. And you don't really get, um, you know, a transparent 
tracking of what it is that you have bought. Instead, you know, you would take the, 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 the retailers would typically take in the money from all the customers. And once they have the, the bag of money, then they'll go and offset some projects. Uh, and then they will tell everybody, here's a PDF for your chunk. You know, you have essentially offset something from this project, but you know, don't know exactly always where it, where it does come from. So that traceability is a component that we would like to add by using blockchain and the micro increments, the fractional uh, uh, aspects that we're adding to it. So from what I understand, yeah. at the moment, most of the demand for carbon offset credits is regulatory demand from governmental regulation, right? Majority, yes. But but the uh, uh, latest, um, there there is a consortium of big banks and, and uh, uh, retail uh, uh, players uh, that I was set up here actually a week ago. I forgot the name, but you have uh, Shell and Maersk and a lot of big companies that are, that have joined in. Uh, and uh, their uh, estimates say that the voluntary market, because of the pressure from demand from consumers and because a lot of these companies have set up uh, pledges to be, if not CO2 neutral by 2030, then at least to have a pathway towards neutrality in 2000, 2050. And, and those commitments, essentially, now they start to realize uh, oh shit, we're not going to be able to make it unless we go in and carbon. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do something. <laughs> so, so, uh, so now they, they need to figure out how do we do this? And everybody's expecting the demand to explode because uh, there's not going to be enough credits to, to, to buy that are of a good quality, that are traceable and so on. So their estimates is that the voluntary market is going to grow from anywhere between 16%, 16 times, 16 fold to 150 fold. So the market is going to be gigantic in, in uh -huh. 15 years. So we are expecting a uh, large demand driven by customers that want to buy products from companies that are carbon neutral, right? Yes, that is correct. Oh. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> and this is where having the advantages of a traceable, transparent ledger yes. be useful so that customers, the final customer can track where if if the company is keeping to its word of Absolutely. buying the carbon credit, right? Yes, because you have very a lot of uh, cases where makes big companies reluctant to go to the carbon market because they don't want to end up on the front page of the newspaper uh, being accused of uh, claiming something and not delivering on it. And you have many cases just here in Scandinavia. Uh, you know, you had the Norwegian, the airline, uh, that basically claimed that uh, all the flights would be uh, climate compensated. They would offset through forestry projects. It turns out that the forestry projects were projects that they set up themselves. Uh, the trees that they planted weren't planted correctly. They only planted half of the trees that they said they would plant, and most of them weren't maintained, so they actually died off very quickly after. So, so, so that was a bad, you know, thing to have on the front page. And similarly, other companies are really afraid of, you know, getting that. So, so it, it's about making sure that there is traceability. And, and if you stick with airlines, for example, if, if one passenger wants to CO2, uh, you know, offset their flight through a, an existing airline, for example, Scandinavian Airlines, uh, uh, they have that option. But what actually happens is you would pay money, but the only thing you will get is a little notification pop up that tells you, well, thank you very much. Now we have climate, uh, we, we have offset your, your trip. You can wait a month or two, then we will give you an overview over which projects we have offset with. And essentially all the money from all the passengers goes into a pool 
and uh, uh, once every month or every quarter, they would then buy from some projects and they would issue a statement that says, now we have bought on behalf of you know, 2,000 passengers, for example. But the single passenger does not have any say and does not know exactly what did, that, what did they buy, uh, which is something that uh, uh, would be possible with uh, such a system as, as we're deploying because the, the units of analysis of, of, of the unit that we sell is not tonnage. So it's not a ton of CO2, it's all the way down to a gram of CO2. So essentially, even a small flight that only emits a few a few hundred kilos, you'd be able to track that specifically to the numbers of installations that have been deployed in order to save the environment for that exact amount of uh, of CO2. So it's an added value, and each customer will then be able to have a you know an application that will allow them to track their history, what have they bought, when, uh, where did it come from, and and there is an element of you know. Uh, uh, goodwill built into the whole narrative and the story. You know, uh, yes, you do um, this for the environment, but there is also the energy access and energy transition story uh, and the human development story that uh, that is important in, in in these particular types of uh, of projects. So uh, yeah, yeah, and you just mentioned, and I think that's where you're creating a great labor because um, doing great labor. Sorry, uh, because well, no, without being, but. What you just described there and the necessity there is very um, for first world markets. That's like a first world problem to offset your carbon. Yes. <laughs> we, as in emerging economies, we're not there yet, but where you're creating that bridges, you're creating uh, a new income source for our emerging economy. Yes. And incentivizing the use of, uh, um, you know, re uh, uh, solar energy, which I think is super important for us. And and I think that, that that brings a lot of relevance to the market. So, when when did you notice that you know the role that you were um, uh, playing and how you're building this bridge, and how do you want to focus on promoting more sources like Kingo or and I think in Mexico you also have a, a yeah, source that you're working with. Yeah. So 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 so. Uh... We, we, we actually realized that uh, after uh, we found out that, that, as we talked about before, that uh, uh, particular product market fit, if you like. So the, the, the unserved need of, of a specific industry that did not have access to carbon market, uh, carbon markets and, and to sell this. And that was uh, as we realized that uh, pay go for solar in rural areas with solar home systems is actually a very big, fastly growing market. But if they're to actually uh, achieve some of the goals of the Paris Declaration, uh, 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 Paris Agreement, and actually uh, uh, keep us under the 1.5 degree of uh, climate uh, temperature rise and so on, the amount of money that actually needs to be uh, channeled into energy projects in developing countries is manifold uh, higher than what it actually is now. So the, the, there's a financing gap, which is pretty huge. Uh, so what we actually need is find ways to accelerate the deployment uh, of these types of technologies to the rural areas. And, and as you say, uh, Esteban, it's actually a uh, it's a subsidy. So so you know the it goes uh, the the money gets paid in, and it's directly measurable. You can see who has got it. So it's not going to go to uh, you know a hole in the ground. It's going to go to something which actually has an impact. As long as it's, the installation is up and running, you can measure that, and that essentially gives you the right to sell that you know saving that you're generating. Uh, and it's it's a very uh, clean flow that would allow these companies to scale 15 to 20 percent faster uh, based on our calculations. Well, of course, it's not as much as is needed, but it's you know it's it's a, it's a contribution that if you add it up, it's actually amounts to something. 
So, so uh, and yes, in terms of the bridge, it's a north-south bridge. But personally, and this is also something where I would like to hear your thoughts maybe on it, we very much envision this also as a south-south bridge. Because in, in many countries, uh, uh, my assumption is that uh, there, uh, you know, energy access is a big political uh, item on the agenda. Uh, and you actually want that. And uh, governments know that they, uh, uh, you know, they can't just extend the established grids. It will be too costly. They need to go for off-grid solutions. Uh, they would like something to, you know, run in that direction. So if you could, you know, uh, 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 in my mind, it wouldn't be far off to, for, if you speak, for example, in the Moroccan context where I grew up, that, you know, people uh, of a social, a certain social ranking in, in, in Morocco that are, you know, generally interested in the development of their own country would like to adhere to these things and buy a package that says, well, uh, I'll pay, you know, $10 a month and that would make me and my consumption CO2 neutral. And as a consequence, I'm actually sponsoring, you know, the electrification of my country by donating this money. It can be traced so that I know that it's not somebody that steals the money. It's actually, it has been deployed and used by the ones that's supposed to have it. Uh, and it could be a vehicle for those uh, same people to then down the line later on say, well, we're actually doing something for our country and it's traceable. You can see all the effect that what we have done. So the same, essentially the logic of, uh, you know, results-based financing, essentially, you know, you show the results, they're measurable, and that will allow for even more financing to be deployed, creating a track record and a good history of, 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 of financing, financial transactions. Yeah, and, and that is like super important, having the correct mechanisms of how to show your results. Yes, you know that, that that's just what makes this whole thing viable and and and, and so cool what you've found out there. So um, Juan, I don't know if you have uh, one more question, and we start wrapping it up. Yeah, <laughs> from what I gathered, you are focusing uh, on the solar energy producing sector exclusively. Do you have plans to expand either to the carbon sequestering, this is planting more trees, or to other renewable energy sources like micro hydropower or power? Uh, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, the, 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 the sequence of in which we would like to do it is still uncertain, but we think the logical next step uh, after uh, doing uh, a home solar system is to look into uh, you know, the, 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 the rural home as a unit and saying, well, now that there is electricity, what is then also needed is, you know, uh, cooking facilities with cook stoves, biomass, that sort of things, which already exists as, as you know, carbon projects as well. Uh, 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 but uh, usually those projects are not traceable. So essentially, a, you know, a biomass cook stove uh, uh, setups that you can currently buy as carbon offsets uh, get uh, generated at the factory level. So uh, once the uh, biomass, the, the the stoves are actually being produced, that generates a bulk issuing of carbon offsets uh, that account for you know what the lifetime of those stoves is going to save the environment. But what actually happens with them? When are they in use? How are they deployed? The tracking is completely missing. So our, uh, one of our thoughts is to say, well, if we're using doing uh, uh, home solar systems that are proper properly tracked with Paygo, it would be a, a, a good uh, a solution to try to do something similar with uh, all the appliances connected to the household. So for example, a biomass uh, st stove, which is then paid for pay as you go through the same mechanism, 
each one of those items is going to have an environmental saving, which you can then calculate and it can be an upsell for the same companies. So essentially keeping it rural to begin with. And the reason for this is that the impact is biggest compared to the actual unit that is being deployed. So the kerosene or candlelights or whatever that is being replaced with a solar home system uh, is vastly uh, uh, greater than uh, you know any other uh, replacement that you could think of anywhere else that is grid connected, for example. So it's essentially uh, uh, you know uh, millions of literally uh, households that are you know uh, uh, cutting down first and burning uh, uh, fossil fuels. Uh, and in a foul swoop, you could take that away. If you aggregate that savings, it would be tremendous. Uh, so so therefore, you know the biggest impact would be in those sectors. So yes, but down the line, it could be hydroelectric, it could be wind farms, it could be anything else. Sequestration, we think, is hard because the methodologies are probably going to be more complicated to assess. You know what is actually being sequestrated, but but yeah. I, I get that the end it sums up to the input, right? What type of input you put in uh, exactly. to the blockchain? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'd like to congratulate you. You've got a ton of work in front of you. It's clear yeah. that you've made work previously, but you still have. A ways to go. Exciting to hear. Uh, ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, how you solved a lot of the issues that are present, and how you considered the trade-offs. I think that's very important for all of us that are in the industry to recognize you always have trade-offs and to try to get the best solution for the problem you are trying to face. So congratulations. I think there is Thank a market. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a market for consumers that want to directly participate in, in carbon offset. So I'm liking this project and I'm very much looking forward to hearing more from you. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, so so I there was a, a great wrap wrap up and I think, you know, your journey is super interesting in the in the sense of how you went from You know, at the end, it's all knowledge and how you apply the knowledge. And I think from this interview, I hope uh, people feel inspired to they can learn something uh, autodidactively and then apply it, actually. And um, maybe just to, to wrap it up, um, let's go to, to a, a moment in, in your past. And you can just briefly tell us, you know, when was that red pill moment? When did you understood that... Bitcoin and distributed ledger technology was going to change the world as we know it. And like you took that turn, you were like, this is it. Well, f f there's no doubt for me. It was, the, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, it was the approximately two weeks after uh, having met my uh, colleague at the bar that was ra babbling on about Bitcoin. Uh, two weeks later, I randomly sat down because I was bored and opened my laptop. And that was actually the aha moment. Maybe 20 minutes into my uh, reading of trying to understand what this was, I just couldn't get off the keyboard. So, so I was there all night until five o'clock in the morning, and it went on for three weeks straight until I kind of thought that uh, now I understood a bit more. Uh, oh, actually, no, I don't get it. Let me see once more. So, yes, that that was the red pill moment for sure. Nice, nice. Well, uh, I would like to encourage you to, to to keep on doing what you're doing. It's such an amazing and admirable work. I think uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, importance and, and weight of that bridge that you're creating between a necessity in, in, in one market and then um, empowering the other market to, to achieve it and, and, you know, 
creating that fluidity in, in it in this market, which is so important. Um, and it'll do so much good for so many people. So a lot of admiration, kudos from our part. And um, yeah, I hope we can have you back sometime. Well, it would be a pleasure. So uh, thank you very much. It was really great uh, talking to you. Uh, I'll on, uh, keep you posted on the developments of the company and I will be following your podcast from now on. So <laughs> thank you. Oh very yeah, much. and where, where can we, if you can share your links and your media, that would be great. Yeah, uh, perfect. Uh, I'll just forward that to you. Okay, thank you, Kareem. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nice to meet you, Kareem. Have a great day. Bye. Lo distinto te ha encontrado. Esto es Infinita Podcast. Encuentra nuevos episodios cada semana. Suscríbete. Suscríbete.